podcast one. Okay, are you recording? Howdy, and welcome along to episode 117 of the Howie Games. Thank you so much from me to you for giving the show some of your valuable time. If you could do me one other small favour and recommend it to your crew, tell other people about the podcast and hit subscribe on your podcast player, that would be outstanding. This week on the show, oh boy, oh boy. After nearly four years trying to make this episode happen, after countless text messages, emails and back and forth and back and forth, the Howie Games presents to you my favourite athlete of all time. Eleven time world surfing champion. Oh my goodness! I can't believe it! I can't actually believe it either. Uh, I tell you what, any boss who sacks anyone for not turning up today is a bum. <laughs> the GOAT. The GOAT. Kelly Slater. There's actually not much else I can really say at this point, but. Just picture this for a moment. Take yourself here. You are sitting in the spare bedroom at your place. You're on a Zoom call, all hooked up, and up pops your favorite athlete ever, and you get to chat with that person for a couple of hours? Well, that was me. What a wonderful, wonderful world in which we live. Already setting up the left, split peak, sticking with Kelly. Wide open, bonus section, Slater still traveling. Driving through an impossible section, Kelly makes it. <laughs> wow, oh my gosh. So sure, this is a podcast about surfing, but more than that, I hope it's an insight into what it takes to be the best of all time in your chosen profession, just how competitive you need to be and how you can still be elite at the age of 49. Enjoy the story of a man who has dominated his sport like few others in their chosen fields. Here for you on the Howie Games is Robert Kelly Slater. So when you search and then you find and know just where to go and thoughts that once used to cloud your mind you see clearly and now you know mystery what is to be revealed in King Selassie I Come on, children, try it with me. We want to reach Mount Zion. Welcome to the Howie Games, an 11 time world surfing champion. We've been hoping to get this man on the show for quite a while now. We are blessed that he is joining us from Hawaii. Kelly Slater joins us on the show. Kelly, how are you going? We're pumped you're on. Good, man. I'm good. How's life in Hawaii at the moment? As expected. I mean, it's been pretty mellow. It's, it's really windy now. We've had a little bit of rain the past couple of weeks, but. Um, it's been a, a really beautiful winter. We had a, uh, I would say like a record swell we, uh, about a week and a bit ago, about 10 days ago on Saturday. Um, just had the most incredible swell many people have ever seen here. 50, 60 feet, whatever you want to call it. And, and really nice winds, beautiful blue water. It was probably as inviting as a 50 foot wave could get or whatever, but, 
um, it's been a, it's just been a great winter. December was really nice into January. Um, now it's just gotten a bit small and a bit windy, but um, other than that, hey, I'm in Hawaii. I'm not complaining. When you talk about 50-foot-plus waves, with your level of experience and skill, is there still fear in those type of waves for you? Oh, totally, not? yeah. I was really scared that day, actually. I was like, I was just kind of out there having a look more than anything. But, um, yeah, waves that wave that size, if you're not used to it, you're not doing it all the time and chasing it. Um, there's definitely a... Um, yeah, you, you have to you have to listen to that fear and and um, you know those are those are ways that could kill you. So it's just something to pay attention to. I know that we have jet skis and safety crews now, and we got inflatable suits and stuff like that. But it's um, you know at the end of the day, your suit can pop and your leash can break and the ski might miss you. So you 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 really you know my book. You got to kind of do what you're comfortable with on your just under your own manpower and um, and sort of listen to that. What have you learned over the journey about fear and how to overcome it? Uh, just the typical things, you know, a lot of the fear is the unknown. Uh, as far as surfing, really bad things can happen when, when the waves are small. In fact, most injuries happen in small waves. Um, some things you, you, you might not expect and... Uh, Big surf, sometimes the most incredible, crazy-looking wipeouts, nothing really happens to the person. It just looks really bad. And um, But the, but uh, I think approaching something, you have to do it cautiously and calculated and, and build up, and then you, you have to use the adrenaline the right way to, to have it push you into something you haven't done before that you, you want to experience in this lifetime, you know? Kelly, frequent listeners to this show, of which I know you're one, because you just told us that in a player profile. <laughs> know that my kids often ask questions of the guest right at the end of the show, typically. Um, but my son's question is relating to what we're talking about. I have a nine-year-old son. His name is Mac. But for whatever reason, Kelly, he calls himself the Big Penguin. Now, the Big Penguin has a question for you right off the top as we're getting just into the flow of things. Hopefully you can hear this in Hawaii. Here you go. Hey, Kelly, your book, Pipe Dreams, is such a good book. I could read it so many times. I could just read it over and over and over. And secondly, I've been surfing with my dad once in Costa Rica in a place called Plagionis. Really good spot. If you haven't been, you should go. Everybody that's listening should go there. It was fine. It was three foot and everything. And then there was a set and it was five foot. And I was like, whoa, this is way too big. So I paddled in and I was really, really scared. But what I want to know is what's the biggest waves you've ever been in and were you scared? That was a long-winded question. He's not a man that says things quickly. <laughs> yes. Um, and, you know, he didn't think that out well because if everyone went there, if everyone listening went to that spot, it would be so crowded and you wouldn't want to be there. You'd want to be somewhere else. I told him that. I told him that as he was recording it, to be honest. Yeah. Um, yeah, biggest waves I've ever been in were probably, I mean, the other day was one of the bigger days for sure. Top five. Um, uh, probably at Jaws in Maui. Um, this is going back 18 years or so, but it was just so big. I'd never seen surf like that. So intense and so many jet skis and people and so much energy. And yeah, it was terrifying. I thought somebody's going to die that day. Um, also being at Chopu during the code red swell, um, yeah. 
being being in Fiji for the uh, 2012 Volcom contest in 2011, in, in July of 2011 also. All those were just incredible moments in, in surfing history. It's a pretty special swell that I know a lot of big wave charters are going to probably be coming into town for. <laughs> you know, those are, all, those are all days that will be remembered in perpetuity in surfing. Uh, and it's, it's incredible just to be a, a part of those 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 days and get to see what people are willing to do you know i it seems like every time the waves are giant somebody's doing something that's maybe never been done in the universe you know definitely not on earth and so you're watching people in big waves at the forefront of you know i say they're like astronauts key moments at the final here takes a hammering here on the 10 minute mark in the finals of the Nazare challenge oh, first question is is he okay we'll be watching for him it's a cauldron of boiling white water there surfers surviving the set it's a cleanup through the lineup here in Nazare you know it's like going to the moon or something or going to Mars like guys are guys are, and, and some girls are doing things now that have just never been done um, dealing with energy that no one's ever dealt with on on the planet and um and being a part of it, you know, handling it. And uh, surprisingly, people aren't dying. <laughs> so you're talking so. about looking at what people are willing to do. It's something yeah. that fascinates me. What are you willing to do in that situation and what are you not willing to do? It's an obvious question, really. Yeah, well, um, you know, I don't live and die for big waves. It's been something that's always in, I've always enjoyed, but it's, it's, not, um, it's, not, it's never been my bread and butter. Um, I mean, I, I started surfing big waves and the late 80s, early 90s. And uh, I would say through the 90s and early 2000s, I was really pretty gung-ho about it. Uh, and since then, I just, you know, if the waves are big, I go surf, but I don't, I'm not chasing it. Um, you know, the other day I was, the other day I was surfing with Noah Johnson, who was, he and I had both won the Eddie Aikau event uh, before at Waimea. And uh, he said he, he hadn't surfed big waves in a few years. He hasn't been surfing very much. He's been doing stunt work and other stuff. And he paddles out and he's near me. I've been in the water for a little while and he paddles up near me and he's like, whoa, it's big out here. And I said, yeah, I go, look, um, I, I said, uh, I'm 48 years old. I got nothing to prove and it's scary as shit out here. <laughs> he goes, man, I'm so glad you just said that. <laughs> and I was like, I'm glad you just uh, responded that way. But, um, but, you know, some days you feel it and, and you get this charge and you want to go and experience all that. And if, if, if you're not feeling that, it's better to kind of let the guys who are in that mode have their day and, and uh, you know, you experience it in a different way. So take me, just to progress that one further, for those of us that will never be able to do that physically or mentally, take me into a big day and you're paddling, say, rather than towing, and all of a sudden your wave comes. What's the process can you break it down for me? What's the process and what's the feeling and what's the emotion when it works? The process? I mean, you just see a wave, you kind of line it up and you spin and start paddling. You, you've, you've made that choice for the most part before you start paddling. Um, and, and you can see if somebody's made that, wh which choice somebody's made. Because somebody could paddle for a wave and not want it. Yeah. That's pretty obvious too, you know. And, and you know, they, we call that alligator arms. Your arms start looking real short. <laughs> <laughs> You're not digging in, you know. <laughs> We've all had a couple of those. Um, it's like 
I don't know, when you get in the zone for big waves or dangerous waves, you you don't really, you're not really controlled by the fear. You, you've chosen not to let the fear control the situation, I guess. Mm. I mean, last time I really felt that for myself was in Tahiti, probably six years ago, seven, six and a half years ago. We had a contest in Big Surf and um, it was really big for every round of the contest. And I really, one morning I was a little scared because I just hadn't paddled it that big before at Chopo. And, and uh, I went out in the morning just to get a little, just get a little time in the water under my belt. And um, uh, I, I saw a couple guys catch waves that really kind of blew my mind because they looked, they didn't look like you could catch them and they went and made them. And I went, oh, okay, well, I guess you can go on waves you didn't think you could. And it really changed my perspective. And then I just decided, you know, if I was going to paddle for wave, I wasn't going to be scared. I was just going to commit to it. It looks like Kelly Slater has finally found himself a little lonely spot in the lineup. Look at this off the bottom into the bowl. Let's it go. Comes flying through. Oh, oh my God. God. Comes over the phone ball and makes it out of that tube. Are you kidding? That was amazing. So I, I really, that whole time I wasn't scared. I, I didn't fall in any waves. I made all the waves. I caught a lot of big ones. Um, and uh, I don't know. There's no there's no way to ex explain that to someone who's ne who who doesn't do something sort of dangerous in their life. I guess you know. Um, I mean, whatever it is you like to do the most, it's the it's I I would have to think it's beyond that. I just think the average person in the world never experiences something like that. You know. So say it's Chopu, right? And it's Big and heavy. And you read the descriptions, Kelly, about uh, when you're deep in a barrel. You read the descriptions about being touched by God and all these really sort of ethereal descriptions of it. When you're there in the perfect spot in that wave that looks like a painting when you see it, it looks so perfect, what is the feeling actually like at that time? Can you describe it? I don't know. It you become a lot more aware. It seems surreal, I guess. And um, everything seems to slow down. You become more aware, more perceptive of everything that's happening. Um, maybe except for sound. I don't, I, I never really remember what it sounds like, uh, but what it looks like. And, and because you're so highly aware because of fear and other, other emotions, um, you, you're, the the tiniest movements mean something, you know. They they're going to determine the the quality of the ride and if you're going to make it and all that kind of stuff. So, um, <clears throat> guy, it's, it, I don't know. It's hard to put into words, you know. Is there any of that awe style feeling, or it just happens so quick that you're in, you're out, and it's like, wow, that was a ripping barrel, and off I go and get another one. Yeah, you, I think it's good after a really great wave to just kind of soak it in a little bit and let it just kind of wash through you. Let the let the adrenaline be felt, and uh, you know that's the high from it for us. <clears throat> and um, kind of soak in the feeling, you know. Realize that you spend your life searching for this thing, and you just had it, and you're you're, <laughs> you're in the middle of it now. Now, that is a great description. When it shuts down and you haven't made it again at Chopu, that reef looks frighteningly shallow. When you know the moment comes that you're not going to make it, what's the body response then? What's going through your 
thought process and what happens when that level of water comes on top of you. So Kelly going down on a super heavy section. His magic board snapped in half. Yeah. That wave was so powerful. One of the heaviest free falls we've seen this whole contest. Well, the, it's a different focus because you're trying to minimize potential injury or what's going to happen when you fall, you know? Because once you, once you start to understand the energy of a wave, if you're looking away from the side, right, the, the, the energy in a wave is circular. And, and, and as a wave breaks, as the lip of that wave breaks, this energy goes down and shoots up. You know, most of it goes down underwater and some shoots mm -hmm. up. And then if you're, you know, on the face of the wave, like it's, it's like being in the eye of the storm when they talk about, you know, if you're in the center of a, of a, a cyclone or hurricane as we have it, um, it's totally calm. But then right when you're in the eye wall of that storm, that's where the most power and energy and danger is, right? So you're trying to escape that. If we fall, we're trying to penetrate that wall of water and get down through the back of it or fall in a way that keeps you down at the bottom of the wave and doesn't make you go up and over right away. So Kelly Slade, oh my goodness gracious me. So the heroics, look how thick that wave is. Look at the top of that wave, Kaipo. Oh, and now trying to get to safety with the pin drop, jump off, penetrating the water, trying to get through the back of that wave and not get sucked over the falls. You know, so when the wave lands like that, there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens here. A lot of energy is dissipating and it, it kind of creates this little void. Sometimes you can jump down right next to where the lip lands and dive straight out the back of the wave. So once you learn how to fall, because you know, years and years, decades of doing that, you learn really well how to fall. And, and, and when you fall, how your body's gonna contort and move in, in, in order to minimize those impacts. And then if, you know, if, you, if you're really, really committed to a wave, like just 100% committed and you fall, you're probably not ready for the fall. So that's when you tend to have more of the really heavy over the falls, um, like picked up by the wave and smashed. And that's when you just kind of, I mean, all else fails, you just guard your face and neck and head and you just kind of try to know where up and down is. You can kind of feel that. And if you're gonna, if you feel like you're really gonna hit, you wanna put your hands out and maybe stop that. Or if you feel like your board's gonna hit you, you know, you wanna block it. So, um, just having that underwater awareness because you can feel your leash pulling and where your board is and you have a sense of how deep it is. And um, if you're falling in that trench of where the lip's landing, it, when you fall in that trench, sometimes you can go straight down and hit the bottom. And so you can get hurt right away, but you can also get away from the wave. So there's, you, you learn how to minimize your impacts somewhat over the years. One more question on that. So that happens in a heat at Chopu and you've just been... You've hit the bottom, you've been held under, and there's 10 minutes left. I've spoken to Formula One drivers, Mark Weber, about you have a crash and then you need to jump straight back in the car. How do you paddle for the next wave? How do you block out what's just happened? For me, I, I think I just get kind of angry that I blew it or made a bad choice, <laughs> you know? So I just, <laughs> you just jump back in the seat, you know? You just get the next wave possible you can. Let's go back, Kelly to where it all started for you in Florida. What was the first thing you rode in the ocean? What type of uh, craft was it? Uh, I used to ride a, um, <clears throat> like a, I don't know, you guys maybe call it a foamy, like a styrofoam board basically that you buy for like five bucks at the store. And it had like a, it was like a molded styrofoam that had these sort of makeshift, like the bottom had like little keels in it. 
And that's what I first rode for a couple of years. In the summertime, I'd get yeah. one or two, or I mean, I'd break them a lot. Um, so I'd have to buy a few every summer. Does it take you many guys to stand up or not? I don't remember. I don't think so. I, I, I mean, it, my dad probably put me on a surfboard when I was one or two or three. I don't really know. And then I sort of started doing it myself when I was maybe five. And what grabbed you about it that's become a life's passion at that stage as a young fella? I don't know. I guess imagination. You know, the idea that you could, it's all, it's all your decision, all your choice. There's no one that tells you right or wrong, really. But you do learn what's more efficient. You, and if you become proficient and become really good, you understand the, the essence of what surfing is and how a board's supposed to move through the water and, and ride in a wave, then you become really um, intelligent about how the board and you and the wave all fit together, reading the ocean. Um, all those things kind of intrigue me. You know, I, I think I, I, for me, it's fun to be able to I can scan the ocean, know when and where the wave's coming and even know what the wave behind the wave I'm looking at is going to do because of the effect of the what, how big I can judge that next wave's going to be, what the water's going to do when this wave pulls off the reef or the sandbar, all those kind of things. And as you're a young fella at school, in primary school, as we would call it, I guess that's elementary yeah, school elementary, for you. elementary, junior high, whatever junior high at what stage did you think okay this is what I could do for a living or were we going down a different path or when did you start to think wow maybe I could become a surfer I think that really hit when I was about 12 or 13 I, and when I was 12 I hit won the I won the US amateur but when I was 13 I won a pro-am event against the, all the best pros in the area and uh and I just figured at that time, okay, I'm pretty good at this thing. Like, I might have a future here. Because a, a lot of the guys in the area were, you know, had, had surfed on the, the the world level to some degree. There were some guys with some real experience, some of the pros in my area. And, and uh, I was beating them at a young age. So I figured if I was 13 beating a guy who was 25 or something and he surfed around the world against some of the best guys in the world, I'd probably have a pretty good shot at this. So around that age, around 13, I, I think was... Uh, when I realised that. And it's an interesting one. So your mum in this situation, is she saying as a parent, put all your eggs in that basket? You know, that's what you want to do. Follow your dreams, follow your passion, or is she having a backup plan type situation? No, my, my parents never functioned that way. They n- Neither of them ever said, um, neither really ever said you got to put all your eggs in one basket or you have to have a backup plan. It was it was like, I don't know. I be, I started loving surfing and I was good at it. And I think it was sort of obvious. They did everything they could to make sure I got to all the events I needed and that kind of thing. But there was never a, a talking to. I mean, if the, if if I got a talking to, it was it was more like um, don't do drugs and don't drink, you know, or something like that. You know, my my mom really hammered that home for me. Um, although my dad liked to drink a bit, so <laughs> but. Uh, for me, it was, I think once, especially my mom saw that I was really good at what I was doing, then she started saying, you know, put everything in there. But as a kid, no, as a, as a young kid, it was, there was no, uh, I didn't have one of those soccer moms or dads. that was like, you got to get out there and work hard, you know? 
they just saw that I loved it. And all my friends at school, none of them surfed, to be honest with you. All my friends in Cocoa Beach didn't surf. Uh, on the weekends, I hung out with my surf buddies. And during the week, I hung out with my friends who liked to play tennis and football and basketball and baseball at school. And um, yeah, my, my three best friends I grew up with did not surf at all when I was growing up. I, one of them did a little tiny bit and the others didn't. So I, I kind of had these two lives. I had this kind of school life and then I had this surf life. And, um, but you know, I did like other sports. I like, I really liked football when I was a kid. I liked baseball. I wasn't especially good at basketball. I, I didn't understand basketball like I did baseball and football, which I understood very well. And I, I don't follow much now, but <clears throat> I understood the game very well as a kid. It, it was just in my blood, in my in our DNA. You grow up with those games, you know. I didn't play much soccer. I didn't really have the cardio for soccer. I didn't like soccer very much. It was too much running. And and uh, <laughs> but I, I I as a teenager I started to like tennis quite a lot. And actually, for a period of time, I wanted to try out for our team at school. And I was playing more tennis than I was surfing for about six months when I was like fifth. Uh, 16 or 17 and I, I yeah I made myself stop because I was like I'm, look I'm not that good like let's be honest here I might make the eighth player on the team if I'm playing great that day <laughs> so I think I think I found the thing I'm best at um so, you know so I, I I understood what surfing was I understood what were the good aspects of it and what made it tick right I, I felt like I felt like I knew something special about surfing no one else did that is a fantastic description so you turned pro in 1990 and obviously your career has spanned so many different generations which I want to talk to you about but what's it like when you when you turn pro how old were you when you turned pro 18 18 and you're going up against these rough tough big strong men how was it for you working, walking into a professional sporting environment, for want of a better term, as, a, as an 18-year-old? That, that, admittedly, the world was talking about saying you were going to be the next big thing. So you came with that tag as well, which I guess can be a positive and a negative. Yeah, I mean, it puts a target on your back. Guys want to yeah. take you out. But when I, was, when I was 17 years old, I surfed against Barton Lynch, who was the 1988 world champion. So it was in 1989 in Florida. And I had him on the ropes the whole heat. And the very last wave of the heat, he, he got like a nine-point ride and beat me, or 9.5. And I knew then, uh, I knew then that I had something special, I guess, because at, at that age, to be able to compete with a world champion, the, the best guy in the world that year, uh, that, that said something to me. And then the following year, I surfed against Martin Potter, who was the uh, world champ. 1989 world champ and um same thing we had a super close heat the the first contest i turned pro at in california in oceanside uh i was the wild card so i had to surf against the top guy i get pots i had him on the ropes towards the end of the heat and in the last five minutes he got a 9.5 and that's what world champs do you know they they if yep. they got to pull it out they do and and pots did and he, he smacked me he smashed me but but uh uh, I remember him winning the he, Potts won the contest and he got on stage and he said I knew when I got past Kelly Slater I was going to win this thing and I was like that was a huge honor for me to hear that 
and uh, and then two events later in France, I beat Potts. Um, so that was like my coming out party, really. Just a quick one on that. Did you enjoy Potts's episode of the Howie Games, Kelly? Oh yeah. <laughs> 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 I right, mate. Normally, at this point, we go through certain performances that people have had, you know, a world title, etc. But with you, that would take us three days because you've won eleven world titles. So let's not go through them year by year, except to say, what does it mean to you to be an eleven-time world champion in the sport that you love? Is it something you look on with pride or satisfaction or want more? Where do you sit with it all? It's a tremendous achievement, a tremendous achievement in sport. Well, it just means that I screwed up in 2013, didn't get that 12th. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I'm still mad at Mick about that. <laughs> uh, and I've totally forgotten about that 2012 one that Parco got, you know. Like, I've let that go. <laughs> just kidding. Have you? Have no, you? I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, to be serious, to, to, it's, I like to have fun with it, too. Um, you know, for the for the ones that you've narrowly lost, there's other ones you narrowly win and maybe you shouldn't have. Uh, and, and I think that's the case for me. Um, I had a couple, 95 and 98, that I just came from right behind and all the odds were against me winning it, and I did. Um, and then there were other years where I, I put in tremendous years and it just didn't go my way. Um, and, uh, but I don't know. I, as a kid, I was so I was so determined to win. It made me feel important. It made me feel special. Um, it made my life feel like it was going to be complete or successful. Um, I, there was there was to me there was no chance I wasn't going to win. It was it was just I was going to win. There it, it, it wasn't like. I might do all right, you know. That wasn't my goal. And I uh, i don't know. I just had this belief that if I really applied, I could figure, out, figure it out better than the next guy and I was going to be the one on top at the end of the day. And uh, so that's why I, I think also why losses hurt a lot along the way especially world titles that were close or events that were very important to me, but more so world titles. Um, <clears throat> but to win 11 titles, I don't know. Sometimes I'd like to have the perspective that it wasn't me and it was someone else, and I'd like to see what that looks like from the outside because it just seems normal to me. Um, my, I see what guys like Gabriel Medina have done or John John um, Fanning you know, each of those guys winning two, two, and three world titles. And um, sometimes I've seen them in such blistering form that they're, they look unbeatable. And, and um, it seems, it's been amazing, you know, take my own personal feelings out of the competitive side of things, but just amazing to see the skill level those guys have had and the dominance they've had competitively. <clears throat> and then... Um, Looking back and, and thinking, geez, I'm fucking tired, man. I've done a lot of these things <laughs> 11 times. And, and um, you know, uh, it's just, it's a lot of, that's a lot of calories. <laughs> just thinking about it, it's a lot of calories. Yeah. <laughs> 
but it's it's um it was I've been having a deeper look at things recently um as as you do as you get older and as my mentors like Trevor have and Tom Carroll and uh you know people I really looked up to that have helped me and been close to me and and um I I look at the recipe that that I think that any recipe that makes someone great at something can also be a disaster. You know, they're real close. It's like saying love and hate are tied in together. Um, it's, there's, there's just something when, I don't know, like I said to you before, I found the thing that I'm best at. And I, I really believe that. And um, in order for that to happen, I think a lot of things had to occur in my life as a kid and growing up and along the way that that formed my decisions and formed the the person I am and why and how I do things that allowed me to be successful in that environment. You talked about introspection and looking back on it, talking to Mick and Parko, again, who I know you love their episodes on the show. <laughs> Um, hey, they don't, said, don't take it personal, man. I haven't watched all of Brad Pitt's <laughs> movies either. <laughs> <laughs> they, they both said you were the most competitive person that they'd ever met, whether it be surfing or playing ping pong, I think was the uh, description Mick used. It was interesting what you said about your childhood and then being introspective. Any man that continues to come back for that many times after that much success must have a tremendous competitive spirit. Where does it come from? What continues to, this is the real gist of what we need to talk about, where does the drive come from to continually back up when you can sit back on your lounge chair and smoke a pipe and say, well, I've done it all, I don't need to do this again? Mm. Um. I think the, the competition kind of keeps you young. It keeps you active. It keeps you, uh, gives you a, a good... For me, I, I find it, it gives me a good reason to be in shape and keep my skills sharp. And being good at something is, makes it fun. And um, so, so you know, if you if you feel like you can keep evolving that and, and improving and learning, that keeps you like young in your mind and and um, and that longevity is it's a fun thing to do. There, you, there's certain challenges. I've, uh, any full year I've ever had, I've never been outside the top 10. In fact, I think I've, ninth was my worst the year my dad died. Um, um, I had, I was in sixth place the year after I won the world title uh, in, in 90, I won in 92 and in 93 I put in a full year and I got, I think I tied with Potts for, in sixth place. I had a whole crazy bunch of stuff happen that year and I luckily made a big run at the end of the year and won an event and had a couple seconds and and, and got in there, tied in the top five, actually. And then um, I think one other year I was, last year I think I was an eighth. And at I think at 47, 46 or 47, whatever, whenever, when did that one end? Yeah, when I was 47, I was um, eighth in the world. And I felt like I had a bad year. I felt like I made a lot of mistakes competitively. And... There's something to be said for that. I mean, obviously, obviously, your skills aren't necessarily improving at that age, um, and 
if, if you're not really tech sharp on your decision making, um, people are going to take advantage of that. And probably the reason I'm not as tech sharp is because it's not maybe as fun or interesting to me as it was at 25 years old. Um, yep. the, ch- the challenge is different. They're not my, the guys I'm competing against now are not my contemporaries. They're, you know, some of these guys literally weren't born when I won my first full title or first few world titles. And um, uh, I, th- I think, uh, is it Miguel Pupo maybe? His dad's younger than me. <laughs> and I competed against him. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. Ouch. Back to Kelly in a sec. Next up on the show, a man whose work I wasn't actually that familiar with until I read a recent article about him and one paragraph into that article, one paragraph in, I thought, geez, this is a fellow I need to invite on the show. His name is Love Morton Dorr. He is a multiple boxing world champion turned lawyer who grew up under the horrific yoke of apartheid in South Africa. His is a devastating, at times very confronting, yet uplifting story. It has really given me a lot to think about. I was born, you know, during that apartheid era, you know, where, you know, there was a lot of segregation, you know, um, and it was really tough, you know, for us black people because, you know, we were treated as savages, you know, in our own country. We didn't have a right to vote. We lived in the worst areas, you could say, you know. Um, but, you know, I came from a very, very poor family. You know, there were seven children and we lived in a you know, two-bedroom shack. We slept on the floor. You know, we were so poor that, you know, sometimes a day or two will go by without a meal. Even when I, I didn't start school till I was about, you know, nine years of age. And, and when I started school, I had to find a job so I could pay for my school uniform. I could pay, pay for my school fees. So, you know, that's just how it was back then, you know. But apart from that, you know, there was a lot of uh, crime going on. You know, when people are poor, they resort to crime. So even within, you know, uh, the townships where we blacks lived, you know, there was so much crime, you know, so much black on black violence. Uh, But then there was also the system, you know, that was treating us, you know, again, like I said, like savages, you know, we were treated worse than dogs only because we happen to be black in our own country of birth. That is Love Morton Dorr, next up on the podcast. Back to Kelly. So we were talking about the the negativity of being competitive. No, it, so, it, it, when you're a competitive guy and you're beating people, it gets on their fucking nerves, man. They hate it. And so they try, those people who can't handle it, they they want to make you the bad guy because they can't handle it. And that's really the truth. Um, you can take competitiveness too far, for sure. Um, but if you're trying to succeed at something, it's like all's fair in love and war, right? When you're, when you're just highly competitive, so much of your life can revolve around that and, and you identify with people through that. So that can be probably annoying to people, you know? Because you're you're always switched on, and you're always you're always in this mode to try and use whatever you're, you're aware of other people, and you're, you're you're maybe you're mistrusting of other people and stuff like that. But um, but if they're your competitors, I've, I found a lot of times throughout the years that my competitors, who were good friends of mine, would kind of bag on me for for being so competitive. And you know, the truth was, I was I was winning a lot of those heats and world titles, and it was probably annoying. 
<laughs> I can understand yeah. that. But, um, you know, I learned a lot from a friend I grew up with. So I, I had a, I had an older brother. I hung out with him and all of his buddies. I played sports with all them. So I kind of advanced quicker than all the other kids my age because of it. Cause they were all like three years older than I was. And, uh, it got to a point where I started, I started winning so much contests and all that stuff as a teenager. Um, I don't know. I think it started to annoy my brother. <laughs> and, and then I, I made this friend in high school who was my brother's age and he was more competitive than I was. His name's Drew. And Drew and I, Drew actually lived with us for a while. Uh, he was kind of like the fourth brother in our house and he was more competitive than I was. Um, to, to a point where he could make me cry. Literally, he, we, we could play games, um, video games and ping pong and pool and bowling. And we, on my birthday, we had, a, we had a, a, an annual thing that on my birthday, we would go to, we would go and play everything. We'd play basketball, we'd play horseshoes, we'd, we'd, um, we'd go bowling, we, you know, everything I named. And then we'd, we'd go race cars, little go-karts. <laughs> We would do everything we could find. We go to this one video arcade place and we play every game we could there and we keep a tally of who won more than the other guy. And that was our annual thing. And and he was not he was not scared of any battle. And and from the time I was about fourteen or fifteen, I, I hung out with him as much as anybody and we would just compete at everything and he was a jock, he wasn't a surfer. So he was kind of better at all these, these things than I was. And it used to just piss me off so bad that he could beat me. And, um, but it sharpened my skills. It, it made me have to really dig deep to figure out who I was as a person, what I was willing to go through in order to win. And I would say that Drew was a huge part of my success and he probably doesn't even really know that. So what have you been prepared to go through to win then? When you judge it yourself, what do you do to, to win? Uh, I mean, there's sleepless nights and just constantly for years and years and years thinking about it 24-7. There's that. But there's also the, the fear of losing to your friends and having them watch you cry over something stupid like playing ping pong. <laughs> you know? And you just look like an idiot. On my 18th birthday, Drew came and Drew, came, Drew and my mom and my couple friends bought me a ping pong table and Drew beat me 17 games in a row. And I beat him on the 18th game on my 18th birthday. And I like to, t- I always tell him that that was the night of upsets because it was the night that Buster Douglas beat Mike Tyson in, Chip- in Japan. And so <laughs> I like to let him think that it was a fluke that he beat me that one time. But um, in 2007, I bought a house. Uh, I bought a, a, a new, new home in Florida. And uh, Drew bought me a ping pong table and came to my house. He said, all right, we're doing this again. We sat in the garage, no one was around, and we played, and he said, we're going to play first person to 10 games, and I think I beat him 10 games to two and smashed him, and he actually stepped back inside my house, closed the door, and I think he cried. (laughs) And he said, and he said, and I ended up winning 220 bucks off him. He said, if you ever tell my wife, you're not getting a fucking penny. <laughs> so and he, like goes, that, he goes, that. I don't have he goes, I don't have all the money to pay you, so I'm gonna have to pay you like twenty bucks at a time until you pay it off. <laughs> so I think from that we can see that you are a competitive beast. So I'll flip it on its head then. Two thousand and three, you mentioned uh, Paco and Mick beating you to world titles. Two thousand and three, you and Andy Irons. 
came down to the final in Hawaii. In the sort of finish contest fans dream about, Andy and Kelly would meet in the final. The winner would take home both the Masters crown and the world title. He beats you in the heat, I think, from memory. So he wins the title, he becomes the world champion. There's those famous shots of you, mate, being consoled in the shower and you look like a broken, broken man. I don't say that lightly, that, that, that's how you looked at the time. So what, what does defeat do to someone as competitive as you? Well, there, there's a lot more to that story, you know. I mean, there was the obvious whole history of me and Andy, and yes, it's a it's a funny, weird, twisted thing because it, I was Andy's, admittedly by him. These are his words. I was kind of his hero growing up. He watched my movies. He loved my surfing. Um, before we were competitors, he he said he looked up to me and, and watched that movie more than anything. He said he like burned holes in my movie Black and White when he was a kid, and <laughs> and so you know. Obviously, Andy admired me as a surfer at, 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 on some level, but we were very different personalities. So when we got to know each other, we just kind of clashed and um, we didn't get along very well. And um, so there's all that. There's all that history. And that was Andy winning his second world title. Um, and then he won three in a row. The next year he won 2004 again. Prior to that, though, there's, there's a famous story, and I don't know whether it's true, that you, you were going out to surf to decide who was going to be the world title, and you, you spoke to him. Yeah, I did. And the story is that you told him you loved him, and some people thought you were saying that you loved him, and other people thought you were trying to put a, a little mental wedge in him. Yeah, well, I, I can never change those people's minds that think either way. So why try? Well, you... you you were doing it, so why, yeah. why were you doing it? You're well, the only one that can tell us. I was, I was kind of waving the white flag, you know, because I felt like I had lost already. Um, I was kind of a broken man. I was going, I was in a really painful, bad relationship. I didn't sleep even in one hour the night before that, that final day. Um, I, I basically, I had a girlfriend who was fighting with my mom and screaming and cussing at her the whole night before and yelling at me, and I was in a huge fight. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, I was, I was just, I was in this really sort of bad painful position in my life and it um it was uh symbolic of the way that day was going to go for me and so i felt i felt like i had very little chance when that final heat came because i had seen the whole day play out and andy came very close to losing in the i think it was the semis or the quarters against luke hitchings um mm -hmm. <clears throat> someone else Someone else in the heat was winning the heat, and then Luke had like a nine-point ride or a nine-five, and there, there were very few really good waves out there like that. And Luke had a, um, Andy had a couple of mid-range scores, and I thought Luke was going to put him out. And then the, right at the end of the heat, boom, everything just switched and went Andy's way. And I was like, oh, man, it, it's like I could just – it was hard for me to admit, but I was like, it's, I think it's Andy's day. You know, I didn't say that to anyone. And, um, and what I saw happening was – the I had always been kind of the crowd favorite here in Hawaii and I had a lot of friends and I had a lot of support and I had a lot of people backing me even against Sonny when 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 I lost when I beat Sonny in 95 um there was no negative feeling for me it was a lot of support for Sonny but nothing negative towards me when it came to Andy there was a lot of negative towards me in the water and free surfs um there was a, I, I felt I felt this different pressure you know it's the young guy trying to pull, push the old lion out, and uh, mm. and it's his pasture now to roam, <laughs> and um, <laughs> and uh, there was a wedge in between some of those friendships I think I had, um, not not my closest friendships, 
but just people I was acquaintance an acquaintance with, and they were definitely in Andy's camp. And what I felt happening was um, my uh, home life was really not good, and my um, you know relationship, and it was really uncomfortable, and I, I wasn't um, I wasn't comfortable in my own house, my own home at the time, and I knew that uh, it was going to be a tough afternoon and, and night after I lost and um, I was kind of hoping Annie would just be nice to me to be honest with you because <laughs> because I, I could feel everyone was like hating on me and wanting him to win and uh, and you know thousands of people on the beach that, that most of them felt like they were in his camp and it was a really hard moment for me personally um, not just because I was a competitive person like personally it was a really difficult time for me and um you know so i was going to kind of have to just uh put my uh put my boots on and and deal with it but um i i did feel like that it wasn't my day I, had, I i woke up in the morning the first thing i did was i was out in my yard with my brother and two friends crying because i had such a horrible night and uh i i had no energy i didn't want to eat because i felt kind of sick and it was just a it was a bad day in my life, you know. In true Pipeline Masters tradition, it all came down to the closing moments of the heat. Uncharacteristically, Slater sat wide off the peak, gambling on some last-second fireworks. They never came. But it was all right, because it, it, um, you know, I'm philosophical about these things. I look back on them, and that was what caused me to win in 2005. And to win in uh, sort of magnificent manner, you know, I, I finally yeah. just said, no, I've had enough of this. Like, it's mine now and I'm going to take it. And I felt like I flipped the, I felt like I flipped the script on Andy. And, and uh, you know, I, as a competitor, I felt like I broke him. And because 2003 didn't break me. And, uh, but it, it kind of did for a while. It, it, 2004, I don't think I really even stuck my neck out to try. And Andy won pretty easily. And then, um, because of fear of failure again from yeah. the, that you'd experienced the previous. Really? Yeah, yeah. Wow, then, that's full on. And then 2005, when 2005 happened, we had our banquet to, to start, to end the year before, do the officiating of the world title, and then to start our year at, um, on the Gold Coast. And, we were walking out of there and I said to Parker, I said, who's it going to be, me or you? Who's going to take this guy out this year? I said, because I'm, I'm planning on it. And he <laughs> kind of went, yeah, all right, let's do it, you know? And then I went, oh, he's, it didn't sound like he was up for it. So I was like, I made the decision right then. Okay, let's, let's build on what we did good and, and, and figure out what we did wrong um, and, and kind of reformulate a plan here. And, you know, maybe Andy's getting comfortable where he's at and he won't see it, the sneak up because he beat me, kind of broke me uh, at the time and, and then easily won the next year. So I felt like maybe he was going to let off the gas a little bit. And, um, and I feel like that's kind of what happened. We had a couple head-to-heads. I won one, he won one. But, you know, come the end of the year, I won the thing and it was uh, a really great feeling come back and, and be able to have that. It's a great description of turning a negative into a positive. Kelly, I discussed what I'm about to tell you now with Trev, and he said, 
you have to tell Kelly this. And I said, ah, the podcast is about the guest. And he said, no, no, you have to tell Kelly this. So I'm going to take 30 seconds of your time now to tell you a story, if that's okay with you. So I, I reckon it was you'd retired and you came back. I reckon it might have been the start of 2002 or 2001 and you had to qualify at Bells Beach because you'd been away for X number of years. I was a producer on a television sports show in Melbourne and I'd been wanting to report for a couple of years and the boss in Sydney kept saying no, no, no. And a fellow by the name of Matty Weiss, who I work with on this show called Sports World, he said, right, go and shoot a story, a sports story, whatever you want, and if it's any good, we'll put it to air. I'm a producer at this point, okay? So I'm like, Kelly Slater is trying to come back onto the World Surf Tour. He's qualifying at Bells, which I'm sure you remember, the qualification process. That's the story. So a gentleman by the name of Mark Rayner from Quicksilver. Yeah, I know Mark well. I got hold of Mark and he said, okay, you can spend half a day with Kelly as you were going through the qualification process. So I come down to Bells Beach and I've never really done a proper interview with anyone before. You were going through the qualifying process. The cameraman and I followed you around for the day and then we'd organised through Mark to go back and interview you at, I reckon, the maybe one of the Quicksilver Heavy's house that you stayed at in the back of Bells there in the trees. Mm-hmm. And I sat down and I didn't know what I was doing, pretty much like this podcast, Kelly. And we chatted for 45 minutes when it's probably meant to be a 10-minute interview. And like this interview, you were so giving and warm with your time and so thoughtful with your answers and so caring. And today I would put a sports story like that together in half an hour. Three days I spent in the edit suite doing everything I could to make it as good as possible. It went to Air Kelly. And I went and saw the bloke I was working for. I said, what did the bosses say? They said, nothing. He said, do another one next week. As a result of that story, you've set me on a career path being a sports journalist and now a sports commentator, which has provided me the best job I could ever imagine. It's provided a wonderful life for my family, financially, and I think spiritually. And Trev said, you need to tell him and say thank you. And I'm like, oh, is it a bit cheesy? So thank you for all that time ago when you were warm and friendly and open to a young bloke who didn't know what he was doing and set me on a path that has filled my life with happiness. And I say that from the bottom of my heart, mate. Thank you. Thanks, man. That's it, cool. It, it is super cool, which is one of the reasons why I've wanted to get you on the podcast. So now we've got that uncomfortableness out of the way. Yeah, no, no I, well, I'm just glad that such a painful interview for me back then like that did so well for you. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. No, I, I had to throw that in there. No, I really appreciate that. That's 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 really cool. And that sound that seems like something Trevor would say to, to say. Yeah. Thank you. That's the end of Kelly Slater part A. See you out in the back for part B.